Amen. Thank you, James. Good morning, everybody. Really excited to be here. I want to do a little experiment at the beginning uh, to see how good you are with tech. Um, I've got some slides coming up on the screen, and one of them has a QR code on them. Uh, Ready? Next slide might be good. Oh, I've got a clicker, actually. Here we go. Right, if you can, have a go at this. Um, I'm going to put a little competition on it just to keep you interested this morning. Turn your phone on, and you should be able to point it with the camera mode onto that little QR code, and it will send you to a website. And um, I'm trying to encourage people to do a little free course uh, to learn how better to support refugees. And it might be your hosting. Uh, Last night we did a little show of hands to see who knew someone that was hosting. And most of you did. So that means that you are in a circle, uh, a social circle with refugees. So wouldn't it be good to figure out how best to serve them? That's what this course is for. And if you manage to get logged on, um, I'm going to do a little competition and you can win uh, one of my new books. Uh, Either this one, The Whistle Stop Tales, Around the Bible with 10 Extraordinary Children, This one uh, is called Whistle Stop Tales Around the World in 10 Bible Stories. Those are kids' books, uh, good for nephews, nieces, and grandchildren. Um, uh, Or you'll win this one, which is my book on the theology of hospitality, God is Stranger. All of them available at 10 of those. But someone will win that this morning. It won't be random because we believe in predestination. Someone is foreordained to win that. Uh, This is not a tombola, this is not a raffle. If you're Baptist, we can still become friends, Uh, but that's where we're going. Let me tell you a story as you you, you get into this. I know people are still arriving, Uh, and then I've got some theology for you. Um, I've got a little bit of politics for you, and then I've got some practical things that I think uh, we might want to do in order to make a positive difference uh, in the public life of our nation, our towns, and our communities. So I think it was about 10.30 at night, and there's a knock at the door. I'm still living at home because I'm 11 years old, and uh, my mum manages to get to the door before me. She opens the door, and then taking up the entire door frame was a huge man. And he wanted to tell me, uh, well, he wanted to ask a question. He said, does Natalie live here? And we're like, no, Natalie doesn't live here. I'm telling my mum, close the door. We don't know this guy. Uh, my mum's going, well, why, why are you looking for Natalie? He said, well, I've, I've just arrived here from Germany. And I flew into Gatwick Airport. And uh, as I was going through customs, I realised I had something to declare. My undying love for Natalie, the girl I just met on the plane. <laughs> and, and this is... The last century before things like Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram. And so all he knows about Natalie is that she lives in Brighton. And so he is going door to door to every single one of Brighton's 100,000 homes until he finds Natalie. I don't know how many houses he'd been to before hours, but there he was asking for Natalie. So I've got a double reason to close the door. We've got a German stalker guy who's looking for Natalie. But my mum says, oh, well, you better come in. And and she ushers him into our lounge, sits him down, and makes him a nice hot cup of Indian tea. And he tells more of his story. And then my mum looks at her watch. She says, it's getting a bit late. You probably haven't got anywhere to stay because you weren't planning to be in Brighton would you like to stay with us? And I'm looking at my mum going, what are you doing? This is some stranger. We don't know anything about him. Why are we inviting him in? 
And um, anyway, I have no sway over my mum at this point. She makes up a a sofa bed in the lounge. And um, this is great news for him. But terrible news for me. My bedroom door was opposite the lounge. And so I go into my bedroom, close the door, move every single bit of furniture that I can move, and I build a barricade. I go under my duvet, and I get out my Swiss army knife for protection. I was terrified. I don't know why I wasn't thinking about the rest of my family upstairs, unprotected by a barricade or a Swiss army knife. But, you know, there it was. And, you know, I somehow fall asleep. And the next day I wake up and I check myself. I'm still alive. The barricade is still intact. I move it and I can hear German snoring coming from the front room. He's still there. And if you like Les Miserables, so's all our silverware. It's all still there. My mum cooks him up a lovely hearty breakfast and then sends him on his way. I don't know, I'm a romantic now and I'd love to believe that somewhere in the world there is a German-English couple. And Natalie, when she tells the story of how they get to, got together, they tell the story of a little Indian woman who believed in hospitality. Hospitality, I believe, can change the world. I believe it can change the world because it's a core Christian virtue. If you want to know a defining feature of the Christian faith, according to Matthew 25, and I wish I had more time to expound it to you this morning, hospitality is a sign that you are in the kingdom, that you belong to God. Do you remember the famous parable of the sheep and the goats? How do you know whether you're in the kingdom? Is it a doctrinal test? You know, can you articulate the doctrine of the Trinity? Do you believe in the virgin birth? Have you turned up at church? Do you sing well in church? Uh, do you give a tithe? Are, are those the entry requirements that show you're in the kingdom? Not according to Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And Jesus says, I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was sick. And you did something about it. You welcomed me in. You fed me. You gave me something to drink. You visited me when I was sick. Those are the indicators that you belong to the kingdom. And if those are not a part of our lives, something is seriously deficient. We're going to have Q&A later. So if you've got theological questions about that, uh, part one says, take it up with Jesus. Part two is, I've got answers for you. This is not salvation by works. It's demonstration that the kingdom of God is here. That the Holy Spirit has taken a grip of your heart and your soul and your mind And you're now living for him. But I want to show you why this is important, not just as as an important virtue for your personal life uh, or an indicator that you have uh, been welcomed into the kingdom, but it's actually critical at this moment in our culture. And it can change the way that people perceive Christianity. Let me give you a little test. The test is this. Uh, There was a survey done in the United States of young people aged between 16 and and 29. Anyone aged between 16 and 29 in the room? Yes, you are especially welcome. Thank you for coming. Uh, You see if these measure up with what uh, you would think as well. When asked, what are the words that come into your mind when you hear the word Christian or evangelical Christian, can you guess what secular young people aged between 16 and 29 had to say about the church in America? Have a little go with your neighbour. This is going to be a little interactive test. Uh, If you want to make a new friend, you might want to talk to someone behind you. 
because you probably didn't choose who you sat in front of or behind. Uh, so that would be a way to make a new friend. But try and think of three things that 16 to 29-year-olds thought about when they thought about the church, or especially the evangelical church. Have a go. Okay. Let's, uh, let's talk together. There's, there's microphones here if you want to use one, or, or if you're feeling not that brave, uh, maybe shout out. Give, give me a word. Who wants to give me a word? Someone in... Yes. Wrong. Is that right? Wrong. Uh, yes, uh, that sentiment is carried, but it wasn't one of the top three. Someone else? Bible bashers and intolerant. Very good. Uh, yes, sadly, that was one of the top three. Yeah. Boring. Um, I think it makes it into the top ten. But keep going. What else? Yeah. Out of touch. Uh, so a little bit like boring. Yeah, okay. One more. Bigoted and politics. Or politics, bigoted politics, maybe. Yeah. Interesting. Now, now pause for a minute. You assume it's going to be negative. Is that right? Well, good news. You're right. Here are the top uh, three. It's anti-homosexual, judgmental, hypocritical, saying one thing, doing another, old-fashioned, that kind of fits with boring and out of touch, doesn't it? Too involved in politics, well said, uh, out of touch with reality, insensitive to others, and boring. Some of you going, yes! I've got five out of five. <laughs> but just, just pause for a minute. This is what people think about Christianity. I think if they were asked a different question about whether they, what they thought about Jesus, it might be different. But this is what people think about Christianity. A couple of things. Firstly, is it any wonder why they're not bashing down our doors to get into our churches? Because that's who we, they think we are. Number two, is it any wonder why Christians don't want to be public about their faith? Because if they identify as a Christian, this is what they assume, or they, they are right to assume, people think about them. So therefore you want to go kind of undercover. Or you want to distance yourself. Well, I am a Christian, but I'm not one of those Christians. You with me? How did we get this public image? How did this happen that people think that the things that we're most concerned about is being against homosexuality or judging people? How did they get that? Some of that, I think, is based on the things that Christians have decided to go to war on. If Christians are engaged in politics or if they're engaged in kind of public affairs, they're often issues relating to sexuality or life and death issues. Those are our kind of favorite issues that we want to go for. And I think, I understand they're important, but do they necessarily have to be the main issue that we're after? Is, is, that, is that a defining issue of who we are? Secondly, let me ask you this question. If, if you were to poll Jesus' enemies, what did they accuse him of? What was Jesus' public reputation even amongst his enemies? Can you remember? Friend of sinners. Isn't that interesting? The thing they were most angry about Jesus uh, for doing was being a friend of sinners. Why? Well, because that is what Jesus spent a lot of his time doing. That's what Jesus went to war on, if you like. He went to war on intolerance, exclusion. He wanted to make sure that the unloved and the left behind were welcomed 
into his circle. That's almost the complete polar opposite of what people think about us. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that your views on sexuality or or abortion or euthanasia are unimportant, but I don't know if they ought to be the main thing that we're known for in the world. Wouldn't it be different if we were known for the primary things that Jesus says will define us as being Christians? How about if Christians were known for their hospitality? That was the primary thing. Let let me do another thought experiment on you. I promised some of you this uh, last night if you were here. Uh, in the 1980s, any of you remember the 1980s? Yes, not the 16 to 29-year-olds. That was last century. But the 1980s is coming back, have you noticed? Kate Bush was number one. It felt like they were making television shows just for me. It's amazing. I'm loving it. So in the 1980s, two brands had a major, major problem. Uh, one of them was Skoda. Um, in my playground, every child knew at least three Skoda jokes. Let me just test them out on you. What do you call a Skoda with two exhaust pipes? A wheelbarrow. Thank you. Why does a Skoda have a heated rear view uh, window? Keep your hands warm when you push it. How do you double the price of a Skoda or the value of a Skoda? Fill it up with petrol. What is a Skoda Cabriolet called? A skip. You're beating me to the punchlines. So everyone knew those jokes, didn't they? Now, my dad, in his genius, was a bit worried that I might be distracted from my studies by girls. And so when he decided our family car, he bought a Skoda. A bright orange Skoda Estelle. Can you remember them? I, I did some kind of pre-driving lessons with my dad and we were going up a hill and there must have been 60 cars behind us and I'd floored the accelerator. Nothing was happening. It was a genius. I didn't meet my first girlfriend who became my wife until I got to university and the Skoda was long gone. Now the other brand that had a problem was called Kentucky Fried Chicken. You remember them? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, their problem was that people were discovering that fried food might not be great for you. And so every time you mentioned their name, you were reminded that it was a fried food, right? Kentucky Fried Chicken. Now, those two companies took a really interesting and different approach to branding. Do you know how Kentucky Fried Chicken solved their branding issue? What did they become? KFC. Genius, isn't it? You don't even have to say the word fried... You just say KFC instead. And uh, some people think that that Christianity needs to take a similar approach. Look, if we were a brand and everyone was thinking of us, that all of these are negative things. Some of you are from the world of business. If your business, if they polled the public and everyone could only think of terribly negative things, you have a problem. No one's going to want what you've got because their first impression is so negative. So KFC thought, oh no, we'll rebrand. But people think we should rebrand Christianity. We, we shouldn't talk about evangelical Christianity or even Christianity. We should say maybe big tent, red letter Christianity, Jesus Christianity, Jesus followers. Uh, you, you might rebrand your church. It sounds kind of a bit cooler so people wouldn't guess it was a church. They would think it was a nightclub or something, you know. <laughs> Redemption. Could be a nightclub, couldn't it? Sorry, if you're from Redemption Church, I'll just pick that randomly. <laughs> and if you also run a nightclub, good on you. That's really exciting. <laughs> So 
KFC rebranded, but their product stayed the same. In fact, it got worse. Did you know that a KFC now is more unhealthy than it was in the 1980s? Uh, you couldn't get a double tower zinger big daddy box back in the day. And now that they publish the amount of calories that are in them, have you noticed? It's like 45,000 calories. That, that would feed a small village for a year in some parts of the world. But KFC, they just thought, let's just change the name. What about Skoda? Can I ask you a really awkward question? Did, did anyone, has anyone got a Skoda? Come on! Excellent. A round of applause, yes. Now, the reason you bought a Skoda is that no one's telling jokes about Skodas anymore. You ask children, and no one knows a Skoda joke. They, know, they all know the ha-ha, and, uh, you know, what, what, what goes ha-ha bonk, you know, a man laughing his head off. They, they know the old jokes from the playground back from my day, but they don't know the Skoda jokes. Because Skoda did something. They didn't change the name. What did they change? They changed the product. Now, in fact, someone told me that the sign for Skoda is cheap Volkswagen. Did you know that? Cheap box, that, because it's the same company, isn't it? it? It's a clever man's way, or woman's way, of buying a Volkswagen car is to buy a Skoda. It's a great quality family car. You need have no shame. Please don't repeat these jokes outside of the room to your family if you own a Skoda. Now, look, we have, a, we have an opportunity, don't we? Christianity in our nation, I think if we polled people, they would probably come to similar conclusions to those 16 to 29-year-olds in America. What are we going to do? Rebrand? via KFC, or actually think about restoring the product, restoring what we are offering by living the life that Jesus told us to live anyway, coming back to biblical Christianity that is all about welcoming those that are otherwise excluded. Hospitality, I believe, is our moment. Hospitality is great because um, it doesn't freak people out. When you hear a sermon about evangelism or mission, most Christians get a little bit nervous. They, they don't want to do evangelism because that sounds scary. Evangelism sounds like I'm going to have to change from normal me into evangelist me. And I've got to remember all those kind of theological points of the gospel. I've got to get them in the right order. I've got to use the right language. And some people, when they do evangelism, it feels a little bit like those commercials you get in America where you're buying a headache pill, and at the end of the advert, at, at, at lightning speed, they, they list all the possible things that could go wrong with you. you know, so yes, if you take this headache pill, you might die, three other members of your family might die, all your organs will be polluted so you can't even use them in transplants. You know, they say that super fast so that they've ticked a legal box that says we've warned you about the dangers. Some people, when they go into evangelism mode, they're not chatty and normal, they're suddenly, right, I've got to deliver the message. You know, Jesus died for your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die and be with Jesus forever. And, uh, you know, that, that was involved penal substitution and you, you need to believe that Jesus died as a sacrifice of atoning uh, worth for your sins. You know, boom, I've delivered the gospel and now I can go back to normal me. And uh, when another evangelistic opportunity comes up, I'll, I'll flip into evangelism mode. So evangelism and mission freak out Christians. But they also freak out the general public. If you tell people we're evangelizing people, they go, oh, you're into proselytism. Mm, that's really bad. You know, we, we don't want anyone, any, anything like that. If you tell the government that you're doing evangelism, they're not excited about that either. Now, if you tell Christians, I want you to be more hospitable like Jesus was, most Christians go, you know what? 
I'm up for that. I'd like to be a hospitable person. I'd like to welcome people and share stuff with them. I'd like to open my life and my home and allow people to experience the good things that I've experienced. I want that. You tell the government that you want to do hospitality and they go, that sounds great. Can we have some more of that? That would be fantastic. Let me talk you through some of the ways that became true over the last 18 months. Um, And then I'll I'll, um, give you some practical things you can do and give you a chance to answer some questions. Oh, by the way, Simon Martin, if you're in the room, is there a Simon Martin in the room? Yeah, hey, come forward, you want a book? You, you filled in this form. It's not too late. Someone else wants to do it, you can win too. Come out, I'll give you a book. Have, do you have kids in your life? When you want, do you want a kid's one or an adult's one? You want the adult one? Okay, it's not X-rated or anything, it's just got lots of theology. Actually, the children's book have lots of theology in it as well. There you go. Here are some. Mate, I'll pick the guy at the back of the room. Enjoy. All right. Cheers. So I want you to go back in time. Okay, this is 2020. It feels like 10 years ago because we had lockdown in the way, didn't we? 2020, I was running a charity. It was called Home for Good. Uh, it's, it's all about helping uh, families welcome children into their lives that don't have families of their own. Uh, that can bring them up. So children that need fostering, children that need uh, adoption. And I'm, I'm loving it. It's such a privilege. We're seeing hundreds, maybe thousands of people around the country in churches consider fostering and adoption for the first time. Beautiful. I, I, I get stories, like once a week, someone will tell me they heard about the message of fostering and adoption in their church uh, or through a video or at a conference, and they've now started the journey. It's absolutely amazing. In fact, even yesterday I met someone uh, in the bookshop Uh, telling me that story. So it's fantastic. And then the government have a role that opens up. They're looking for someone to advise them on adoption and kinship care. And I'm feeling, oh man, you know, I really want to change the system. I don't want to just keep bashing on the outside of government saying, please change, make things better. Um, What about if the poacher turns a gamekeeper? What about if we try to come inside the tent? And I'm inspired by... The book of Daniel. Is it, is it one of your favorites? It's one of my favorites. I love reading it to children. It's got lovely blood-curdling stories in there, but stories of incredible bravery. And Daniel has this really interesting role that he has been kidnapped from his home in Jerusalem and taken to Babylon, where he's going to be brainwashed to be a kind of little zombie clone robot for the Babylonian government. But it doesn't work. Because Daniel refuses to give up on his core principles. He'll adapt. He'll, he'll change his name uh, to, to, to honor another God. Uh, he'll dress in a way that is similar to those of the people around him. Uh, do you remember in the fiery furnace, they're all wearing turbans. That's not a very Jewish thing. They've adapted their dress. But he won't give up on his God. He's incredibly passionate about serving God. And he's given a really difficult message. I don't know if you remember. Uh, he was asked to interpret a dream. Uh, in Daniel chapter 4 for King Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, it's a pretty terrible dream. King Nebuchadnezzar is going to go insane. He's going to lose his mind. He's going to have a mental health breakdown. And Daniel's got to tell him that. And so his opening line is, Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, I wish this dream were for someone else, not you. And I'm going, really, Daniel? Like, Aren't you just super excited that this evil, wicked despot is going to get his comeuppance? 
that God is going to intervene. A king that sets up a huge statue of himself and then will burn you to death if you won't bow down to it. You wish that this dream was for someone else. What's going on? I think Daniel's willing to work inside the tent. He's willing to be part of an establishment that he doesn't necessarily agree with in order to get some good stuff done. Does that make sense? I think in politics, Christians often take one of two stances. The kind of John the Baptist approach, which I think is fantastic, which is often to shout at government and tell them how bad things are. And there's a place for that, isn't there? It worked for John the Baptist. He did the right thing. Yes, he got beheaded. That wasn't because he had bad political theology. That was because he was brave and courageous and God needed people to stand up and speak truth to power. But there's also the Daniel, Joseph, Nehemiah, Esther approach, isn't there? Where you're inside the tent and you're trying to work to make a system better than it would have been before. Are there any civil servants in the room? Brilliant. I'm so grateful for you guys. Without you guys, our country wouldn't be functioning at all. Civil, do you remember Yes Prime Minister? No, some of you are going, no oh, man, that's so old, what are you talking about? But in, in Yes Prime Minister, the civil servants are wicked and the politicians are good. It might not be the same today. Civil servants are often full of grace and truth trying to stop a bad system getting worse. And they're after making impossible decisions, but without them, the system wouldn't be working at all. So I'm grateful for civil servants. So I'm not a civil servant, but I felt called by the book of Daniel to think maybe I should try and work inside the tent. And so I applied for this job to be the chair of the Adoption and Special Guardianship Leadership Board, which is the longest title ever. It's got two ships in it, you know, the chair of the Adoption and Special Guardianship Leadership Board. I've never had a title that had two ships in it before. That's weird. And it's complicated because I've had three Secretary of States for Education in the last month, right? (laughs) But I felt I ought to try, do what I can within the system. The problem is going inside the system means I can't be outside the system as well. So I had to give up running the charity that I founded. Have any of you had children leave to go to university? Yeah, it's a little bit painful. Uh, Yeah, it is, isn't it? I felt like that with my charity. I was like waving goodbye to it as I drove away in a car uh, going to try and work with the government. The problem with the, the government role is it was only one day a week and I had four days spare and no income. And I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do? But God is, God is brilliant, isn't he? He's brilliant at his timing. When you, when you try to walk in his footsteps, stepping out in faith, he always comes through. So I shouldn't have doubted. I shouldn't have worried. But four things happened in a row. The first thing was that the UK started a new visa program for people from Hong Kong. I don't know if it's true in your neighbourhood, but across the UK, about 100,000 people from Hong Kong have arrived in the UK in the last year. Have you, have you noticed? In, in your community, have you, hands up, have you got more Hong Kong? It's a few of you, yeah? Any of you in Sale in Manchester? Uh, they have the largest number of groups uh, from Hong Kong. Uh, also Milton Keynes, London, obviously, uh, but places to uh, like Nottingham, and um, uh, Edinburgh, also large populations of Hong Kongers. This was going to be the largest migration to the UK from outside of Europe in a generation. So I thought, oh, what was, what was the one before? Well, the one before was Windrush. 
Does the word Windrush send a shiver down your spine? Because we the church and we the nation did a terrible job with those that we invited to come and help us rebuild our economy in the 1950s. People coming from the Caribbean. In fact, I heard so many stories like this that people from Afro-Caribbean backgrounds turned up at their local church. And it was the same church that they went to in Trinidad or Tobago or Jamaica. Same church. It could have been a Catholic church, an Anglican church, a Baptist church. And they wore their Sunday best and they turned up and they sat on the front row. Well done, people sitting on the front row. I know you normally sit on the back. Um, And people were told, well, I'm really sorry, but that's, that's my seat. And they were sent somewhere else. Or at the end of the service, the vicar, uh, the priest, uh, or the Baptist minister would come up to them and say, thank you so much for coming to our church, but me and the rest of the congregation feel you would be far happier down the road with people like you. And that's the origin story of the black majority churches. We pushed people out. Can you imagine that? It's unthinkable, isn't it? That, that hospitality was supposed to be our defining feature. And what did we do? We pushed people out who were coming to church, looking to find their brothers and sisters. We pushed them out. So I thought, what about if we reversed Windrush? What if with all these people coming from Hong Kong, the church could be at the front row, the front of the queue, to welcome Hong Kongers? And so we started something called UKHK. 500 churches around the country became Hong Kong ready. Many of your churches, Amazing. Some of those churches were white majority churches. And that's, that was amazing. I heard of a church in Southampton. 60 new people from Hong Kong started coming within the course of a month because they put funying, ukhk.org. Uh, funying means welcome. They just put it on their website. And they were on our website, ukhk.org. And 60 new Hong Kongers started turning up. I went to preach there. They had two morning services. In between the services, a lady came up to me and said, I gave up on Jesus 30 years ago. But when I came in Hong Kong, but when I came here, this church was so welcoming, I found my faith again, and my husband has started an Alpha course, and I'm praying him for him to come to faith. I'm going, yes, this is it, isn't it? Let's flip Windrush. Instead of shoving people out of the church, let's welcome them into the church. And not necessarily only helping Christians, we'll help anybody. I heard of a church in um, Reading. It was a Chinese church. It had about 60 regular people each Sunday before lockdown. Now it's more like 250, mostly from Hong Kong. The Chinese church is the fastest growing church in the country because of this Hong Kong migration. It's incredible. The government paid money to help us run welcome festivals. This is a welcome festival. We ran about six of them uh, over the last three months. Uh, One of them was in Milton Keynes. Two and a half thousand people turned up. And the church was doing the welcome. I've been on the front of the the South China Morning Post, which is a pretty um, pro-Beijing newspaper. And they're asking me, why do churches want to welcome people from Hong Kong? I said, well, at the core of the Christian faith is God's welcome of anybody that needs it into his family. And we wanted to show that to people from Hong Kong. I tell you, which would you choose? A kind of Christianity against homosexuality story on the front of a newspaper or at the heart of the Christian faith is a welcome to anyone that needs it. Which would you choose? 
What is the public engagement that's going to help the core of the gospel to get out to the widest group of people? I think it's hospitality. And I think that's why Jesus made it a priority. Okay, so we did a reasonable job with Hong Kong. Churches across the country. Well done if your church was one of them. If you're from Hong Kong, Fun Ying to you. Lovely to see you. Uh, well, they liked what we did. So the government said, hey, um, good job with Hong Kong. Is there any way you churches might get involved in helping people from Afghanistan? Because we're planning this gradual, slow, well-planned evacuation uh, of our troops... And anyone that helped our troops and our diplomatic mission to come to the UK, we're expecting maybe 100 a month to come. Uh, could you help me find some accommodation? So I was phoning around asking if there are any spare vicarages, any spare uh, you know, uh, Baptist um, halls, or anywhere that, that people might be able to live. Because uh, Afghans come in larger families. Two adults, six children. That's a big family. That's the same size as my family. And we don't fit into your average two up, two down. So we're looking for bigger houses to rent. Anyway, while I'm phoning around and finding no available housing, the government said, ah, things have got a little bit more complicated. <laughs> the Americans might have pulled out, sorry if you're Americans, really quickly, and the whole country is basically uh, back in the hands of the Taliban. We're evacuating people from Kabul airport, do you remember? Uh, people clinging on the outside of airplanes. Could you help us? We've now got 3,000 Afghan people that are going to be moving from a quarantine hotel into 30 different hotels around the country tomorrow. And I'm like, seriously, 24 hours notice, that's ridiculous. But sure, we'll try and help you. And then they ask this question. There's a civil servant. She says, well, can you just tell us whereabouts you are? And this is my favorite bit. I said, well, well, we're the church. We're everywhere. We're in every single village, town, and city. There are Christians, and they've got two jobs in life. To love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul and mind and to love their neighbour. And Muslim refugees from Afghanistan are our neighbours so I'm pretty sure I can find you what you need for tomorrow. So we phoned around, loads of us phoned around. Uh, We got in touch with bishops and and, and the Baptist Union and uh, loads of other groups to say, look, could you help us find churches wherever there's a hotel that's going to receive Afghans? 30 hotels, 30 churches. It happened. The church stepped up. And over the next few months, I think we were able to serve around 2,700 Afghan children and their families get the basics they need in order to survive in the UK. Because a lot of them had just turned up on a plane with whatever they could carry. And they had just really inappropriate clothes for our weather. Uh, Mums didn't have pushchairs or prams. So if they had six children, they couldn't leave the hotel because they couldn't carry everybody. And, And we did it by just talking to people. What an amazing opportunity we had. One church in Milton Keynes, um, actually just outside Milton Keynes, uh, they, they started to run stuff out of their church building. They'd go in, chat to people in the hotel, find out what they needed, and then come and deliver it personally to each of the Afghan families. Uh, other groups were just dumping stuff in the lobby saying, help yourself, which is really dehumanizing because people that haven't had much suddenly start grabbing. It's like Harrods Sale, you know, everyone elbowing their way. Harrods, I've never been to Harrods Sale in my life. I just picked that out at random. <laughs> I'm sure the same works at Lidl's as well. Lidl's Sale, you know. It was a mess. But we wanted to treat people with dignity because they're made in the image of God. And so in we went. This got press. In fact, there was a brilliant... Uh, piece of press on the Sunday Times 
Because the church had found out that Afghans love cricket. Did you know Afghans love cricket? I did not know that. But now I look at the geography. The next door to Pakistan and near India makes all the sense in the world, right? So what did this little church do? They, they, they ran a cricket match. And it wasn't Afghans versus the village. It was mixed teams. And there on the front, well, I think page two of the Sunday Times, there's my mate. He's a local Baptist pastor. He's bowling. He's terrible at bowling, but they kind of set up the pit. He's bowling. And uh, there's a guy who runs social media for uh, the, um, the embassy in Afghanistan. had been evacuated here. You can't see his face because we're keeping his identity. But he's batting. And that was, the, that was the picture. You know, church runs cricket match to welcome Afghans into their village. Isn't that nice? Isn't that what you want the church to be known of? That, that we reach out, we show love and compassion, that we're clear about what we stand for. We are not the same as Muslims, but we're willing to help and assist Muslims because they're our neighbours. And, and I, I get to talk about the Good Samaritan on the radio because this is an you know, a lived example of that. Isn't this what you want? Isn't this what you want the faith to be known for? Won't it help change people's minds about what we are prioritizing? Anyway, that was number, what we on to? Number two? Uh, actually, that might be number three. Here we go. Oh, here we go. Ukraine. Yesterday, I, had, I just had an amazing moment. I was here, I just asked anyone that was hosting or knew someone that was hosting. And most of this room put their hands up. It's beautiful. Something incredible is happening. Tomorrow, it's going to be public knowledge. 100,000 Ukrainians will have come to the UK. That is unthinkable. Because at the same time as we're doing that, we're deciding that other groups get sent to Rwanda. You know, without even having their asylum claim heard, they get stuck on a plane to Rwanda. Now, Rwanda's, you know, a country that's been through a lot, and it, there's loads of wonderful things about Rwanda. That's not the problem. It's basically us saying, we don't want to deal with this. We'll push that on to someone else. You know, we do the same with our recycling. We can't be bothered to process our recycling, so we pay Malaysia to deal with our recycling. Can, can you imagine the carbon footprint of sending hundreds of thousands of tons of recycling to Malaysia to be... It's just nuts, isn't it? But that's how we're treating refugees and asylum seekers. Someone else's problem. They're like a, an unwanted you know, a product that someone else can deal with. That's so dehumanizing. So I thought, okay, sometimes with government, you've got to catch them doing something good. It's a great parenting tip. Have you heard this? Don't just tell your kids off. Reward them for doing good things. I like that. So I'm always up for whenever, whenever the government's doing something good, I'm just going to cheer them on. And so when the Ukraine thing happened, I'm thinking... What are we going to do? We've currently got 12,000 Afghans in hotels. It's costing millions of pounds a day to keep them there because there's no housing for people to go to. And, and if we're going to do something from Ukraine, where's everyone going to go? The government was having a similar thought and they announced that we would have an uncapped humanitarian sponsorship route. Remember that? And I was excited and worried at the same time. Uncapped is amazing. That means if we could find sponsors, an unlimited number of people could come here. So the government was kind of like passing the ball to civil society to say, will you do it? Will you help? And I thought, okay, I reckon we could mobilise civil society. But they said it was a humanitarian sponsorship programme. Some of your churches have been involved in Syrian sponsorship programmes. 
And you know that the, the lead time for that is about nine months to a year to get a visa going. That's how long it's been taking. That's why over five years, probably only about 700 uh, families have been welcomed to the UK under a Syrian resettlement program. So you can see why I'm worried? It looked like a push it into the long grass, you know, it'll take a year to get a visa, and by that time, no one will care. So I thought, well, okay, what would Daniel do? Oh, king, you know, I wish this prophecy were for another king. You've got to make the government somehow look good and feel good, and yet encourage them to do the right thing. So I put out a tweet one morning. It was about 8.30. By 9 o'clock, someone was in. I said, look, I think I've got an idea. We need a website and someone that can help us with a bit of design. And so this guy, within a day, set up a website where people could pledge to be a humanitarian sponsor before the sponsorship scheme existed. You see what we're trying to do? Within... Three days, 11,000 people had signed up. That's great. 11,000 is a politically significant number. 11,000 is enough to get you on... Uh, where do we go? Oh, here we go. Boop, 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 boop. Not there, not there, not there. That. Do you know what that is? That is Breakfast TV. Do you know who that is in the middle? That is Dan Walker. Dan Walker is a follower of Jesus. Dan Walker is up for talking about welcoming refugees. Dan Walker allows us to get six more thousand people just in five minutes to sign up to be a humanitarian sponsor. By the time the government was thinking about opening their scheme, we had 30,000 people say they wanted to help. So the government knew that if they opened the scheme, it was going to work. People were up for it. That's why 100,000 people are now here. Because people like you said we'd do it. And that prompted the government to play their part and actually open the scheme. Christians around the country are doing incredible things to help to welcome Ukrainians. Now, before I just give you a chance to ask some questions, some people are a bit upset about the Ukraine scheme. They're saying it's racist. In fact, friends of mine that are here uh, went out for dinner with some of their friends and they were told, oh, you know, you, you shouldn't be helping Ukrainians because uh, you didn't help Afghans. And part of me wants to go, hang on. We did help Afghans, uh, we did everything we could, and we're help, happy to help Ukrainians too. But my friends just said, well, okay, if we shouldn't help Ukrainians, what, what are you doing? Well, we're not doing anything, but we still think it's racist to help Ukrainians. They're going, what a ridiculous idea. Do nothing because you're worried about looking racist. Other people go, well, why aren't we helping Afghans or South Sudanese in the same way? Why are we only offering this to Ukrainians? Well, firstly... The government only asked us to help Ukrainians in our homes. That's the first time the government's put that out on this kind of scale. That's never happened before. Second, I'm a foster parent. When we started fostering, my kids were four, five, and six years old. And we were a bit nervous about teenagers. Some of you were a bit nervous about all teenagers, right? Um, and I thought, you know what, let, why don't we start with babies? Because we know what we're doing with babies. We've had three babies in quick succession. Maybe we've got some skills and we'd grow into looking after teenagers. My children are now teenagers. We grew into it. For some people, helping women and children from a European country, country where people go to Nando's and their kids watch Frozen, that's not too scary a jump. It's a good first stage. You with me? And so that's why people are doing it. Most people that have welcomed the Ukrainian have never worked with refugees before. So cut them a break. Cheer them on for doing something good rather than telling them off for not helping other groups. I've polled people 
And they're telling me that they're up for it again with other groups. This was a brilliant first step. We're running online events to spur them on. The next online event we've got is happening on Tuesday. And currently, 1,750 people have booked in to come to it to be cheered on about accommodating their Ukrainian refugee and finding new accommodation for them. This is a social movement. And guess who's at the heart of it? The church. Guess what's happening? God is busting out with a kind of wave of hospitality across the nation. It isn't limited to the church. Let me tell you a bad story. So I've had um, 600 pubs say they want to help um, in, their, in, in the hosting and welcoming of Ukrainian refugees. 600. It's amazing. I've had more pubs get involved than I have Christian conference centres. There aren't, even percentage-wise, I've had more pubs get involved in Christian conferences. I, I got a call from the government about Afghanistan, and they said, look, could you help us find some appropriate accommodation? Because we're running out of hotels. And I thought, look, you've got all these Christian conferences. They've been closed because of lockdown. Surely some of them could be repurposed. They're family-friendly. Uh, we could wrap around them. We'll book out the whole places for every single day of the week you know, for three months at a time, pay whatever rate that you need, and we'll provide the food, and we'll get churches to wrap around. I couldn't get a single one to do it. But 600 pubs. So sometimes our culture is ahead of the church. So we can't just say, oh, aren't we brilliant? There are things that we haven't fixed, but there is something going on, and it's a movement we can be part of. Um, All right, I want to give you a chance to ask questions. Um, So you can queue up down here. While you're queuing, let me just give you five quick things that I think you could do whatever state you are in, in your current situation. Have a go. Oof, not that one. Trying to find the slide. Not this one. Ah, here you go. Five ways you can influence. Um, And queue up while, uh, if you have a question for me, and then I'll come to you. Uh, But I'll go on until you you do. Uh, Five ways you can influence public life. Social media, local politics, practice hospitality, media and workplace. Let me break those down for you. I found social media to be a wonderful place. I know a lot of people find it toxic and horrible, uh, but I believe we're called to be a light in dark places. I found social media as an incredible place to inspire and encourage people to be hospitable. And I'm trying not to be angry in capital letters on social media. I want to be inspiring. And I try to find a way um, to talk positively when the government's doing something good and not just negatively when they're doing something wrong. I try to find a way to stand up for human rights. So, for example, um, a lot of this conversation talks about illegal asylum seekers. You know, that's a contradiction. You can't be an illegal asylum seeker. Asylum is a right that every single human being has, thanks to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 14. So I just champion that. So I'm trying to be a positive influence. I'm trying to think, how do not just Christians hear what we're tweeting and Facebooking and Instagramming, how do secular people uh, engage? And people who are clearly atheists are getting behind what we're doing because we're trying to be a gracious presence. So think about social media. Second, local politics. Do you know how your politicians got to be politicians? It's because of local politics. If you want to influence the national, you've got to start with the local. If, if I asked, if I polled your community, what do you think about, and then insert your church's name, what would you be known for in your community? Collectively. 
Some churches are known for being the place where the vulnerable can go. My mates and my brother-in-law are part of a church in Bedford. They've got this incredible cat program. And people know if they are in financial need, the church is the place to go. Talk about being a friend of sinners. Isn't that beautiful? I know other churches where if you polled the community, all they know about you is that you use loads of parking on a Sunday. That's all they know. You're making no positive difference into your community at all. Oh, did someone come up for a question? No. Yes, you did. Okay, please. How can we help um, the government to change the speed at which non-Ukrainians can come into the country? Yeah, yeah. Or, or be accepted here? And, and get the asylum they need. Really good. How can we help the government change the speed or even the posture towards non-Ukrainian uh, immigrants? Um, I, I think actually it links to that point, local politics. So one of the huge issues around asylum is housing. It's the issue we're about to face with Ukrainian refugees. Where are they going to go next? There is not enough available housing. So my friend in Oxford, he decided to help Afghan refugees Church members, and again, I'm no financial expert, have taken money out of their savings, which wasn't earning them any interest anyway, and they've collectively bought a house, and they're now being a benevolent landlord to allow you, uh, an, an Afghan family to come and live in their rented property. The money that they're getting from the rent, uh, they're using to kind of cover any incidentals on the house. People that have invested in it are thinking, you know what, okay, I could just give this money away, I, I, that, that's possible, but actually looking at the housing market likely to continue to go up for a while, I'll probably get a return over five years, so it's not a terrible investment either. Those kinds of local pilots to show what a community is willing to do is, gives me great evidence when I go to the government and say, look, let civil society help you with these other asylum groups. Look what we've done when you've asked us to help you with Ukraine. Let us help you with people from Somalia and Eritrea and South Sudan. Here, this, this thing in Oxford is not just a one-off. We're seeing it happen around the country. Let us help you. So what you do locally, it, it, it's huge, right? It helps local people. It engages the church in practical, hospitable ministry. But if you let me know about it, we can then collectively speak to the government and say, look at us. We can help you solve these intractable problems. It's a great, great question. Did you have a question as well? Yeah, use the mic, and then I'll, I'll finish this off in the next six minutes. Yeah. Um, I think just a bit of background to help you. I'm married to a Ukrainian. I have uh, mum and dad as refugees with us, and we're working Amazing. with refugees. Um, however, one of the things for me as some, someone who's been involved in Ukraine, we talk about the refugees as about what we are doing to help them. Yes. But actually, they have things to teach us, particularly mm. from the point of view of the Christian faith. Yes. And I've learned many things. So how do we make sure that we don't pat ourselves on the head and say, that's amazing, aren't we great? Yeah. But how do we hear the voices of Ukrainians, and particularly Ukrainian Christians, about what, how they critique our culture? It's really good. Um, in the little course that some of you signed up for earlier, a big theme is don't do things for people, because that encourages paternalism. 
you know, you're taking agency away from people. People that have experienced trauma need to start making decisions for themselves rather than being told what to do. They didn't make a choice about where they lived or whether they left their country or whether they came here. That was all made for them, like on a conveyor belt. And part of trauma recovery is to make decisions for yourself. So we talk about um, working with rather than for people. And that feels more like a partnership. Um, and it's true, you know, when, when um, I don't think we need to be praying for the global church. I think we need to be praying with the global church. And thanks to Zoom, it's really easy now, isn't it? So it wouldn't be impossible on any given Sunday morning for someone from another culture, could be from Ukraine, could be from South Sudan, could be from Korea, to pray with your church. That's really simple. Why don't you try that for a month? I think you will realize what you found out, that um, there is incredible, world-changing faith outside of the British church that puts us to shame. So let's, let, let's, let's build those relationships. Great. All right, I'll finish these off, and then if anyone else has got a question, you can line up there. Um, show up in local politics. You know, become part of your local PTA. Become part of your local green group. We, we're part of the local Greener Henley group because we think, as we heard from Rosalie last night, the environment matters. And so why wouldn't we be part of the solution? It, it, maybe have a term off from being in a house group to be part of some local political solution. It could be PTA. It could be your local Conservative, Labour, Lib Dem, other party. Uh, why not? Why not show up and start influencing with Christian hospitality? Number three, throw more parties. We've moved house recently. We live in a really weird place called Henley. I tell people that we are raising the diversity and lowering the tone just by being in the town. <laughs> and we started throwing parties for our neighbours. Uh, so we did one at Christmas. We had to do it outside because of Omicron. We put a bonfire up in the garden and just invited our neighbours around. People that had lived in our street for 11 years had never met each other until they came to our backyard. It's ridiculous. We had a jubilee party. Did you have a jubilee party? Any excuse to throw a party. If England win the Euros, throw a party, right? Or why not throw a watching party? Just invite them around. Be hospitable, Okay, because that's how relationships are born and you will be known as people that are the friendliest people in your road. Why not? Create positive, interesting content for local media. Did you hear that I was deliberately creating media stories that actually worked at the national press? You could do that at the local press. That's how you will change people's perception of the Christian faith. If you just sit there telling the people that the world is going to the dogs, that everything's wrong, instead of... As Jesus said, let your light shine before men and women that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's Matthew 5, isn't it? You know, how are people going to know? Create interesting media stories. You know, make friends with your local journalists. Offer your local newspaper who is struggling for content. Offer to write them some stuff. Send them some photos. You will begin to change the perception of people for your local area. See your workplace as a parish. I now feel I have a chaplaincy role in 600 pubs. It's a really tough calling. It's like those people that are called to be missionaries to Hawaii. I'm sure that's true. But, you know, somehow God's opened the door for me to work with pubs. I go on their kind of national pub, you know, gathering team building event and I talk about this incredible wave of hospitality and I share my faith in a subtle but clear way where are the places that you can be 
as a Christian in your workplace, commending hospitality, grace, inclusion, diversity. How can you show that? And, and when people say, why? That's your opportunity to say, well, you know, I believe in a God that welcomes everybody, so I want to do the same. There are so many ways, friends, that we can change the world. I think I've got time for one last story. We uh, were going for a little walk, uh, our family, with a family from Afghanistan. I'd made friends. He was the guy that was playing cricket on the um, Sunday Times. We'd made friends, and we'd worked out. He had six children. I had six children. So we thought, why don't we go out for a little family walk together? And maybe we'll throw a picnic. And, and that meant we had to Google what, what Muslim people could eat and couldn't eat. I'm not an expert on halal food. We decided to go totally vegetarian. That kind of worked, and everyone was happy. Uh, but then I realized my youngest daughter really struggles to speak at all, right? Because of her background, she's our lovely little foster daughter who've had her since she was one. She's now 10, uh, but she still struggles to speak. And I'm thinking, how is this going to work? How, you know, they can't speak English. My daughter can't even speak English. How is this going to work? So we went for a massive walk around the lake, and then we had our vegetarian picnic together. But by the time we were saying our goodbyes, my little girl was hand in hand with his little 10-year-old girl. And I'm going, how did that happen? How did my daughter, who can't speak English very well, end up making friends with an Afghan little girl that doesn't speak English at all? How did that happen? I'm thinking my daughter is a living challenge. If my 10-year-old daughter with speech delay can find a way to make a bridge and show hospitality to Afghan refugees, surely you and I can do our bit. By the grace of God, we will demonstrate the kindness of God to people that need it the most. Our time is up. I'm 13 seconds over. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to be hanging out in the bookshop if you have further questions, but have a fantastic rest of your day.